Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, and this week we're joined by creative instigator Wilson Tang, who has worked on a slew of films from Steven Spielberg's AI, Lemony Snicket, and all the way to Star Wars. Wilson and I discuss the future of creativity and the wide open vastness that is the unknown. We set out on some very interesting topics that I think you're really going to enjoy. So here we go, everyone. Episode 155 with Wilson Tang. Let's roll. Well, I mean, first off, big thank you to Michael Harris for uh, introducing us way back when. I think he introduced us uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit longer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the both of us being really busy and then just kind of schedule conflicts and then the podcast is aligning all these things. So we're finally here. So thank you for that. And, and a big thank you to Michael as well. And um, you were kind to, to send some kind words recently too, which is appreciate that as well. And, um, yeah. And again, as you mentioned, we work in very similar circles, similar people and stuff. And it's, it's, it's funny how you might work in this smaller industry, which I consider in our industry to be very small. Um, and how you still meet new people, but people that you know people of, you know, so that's pretty, it's pretty funny. It's ironic. I like yeah. that. So, but yeah, so, so thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Well, great to be here. Awesome. So um, I have a lot of different questions and, and some, some basic kind of topics I'd love to, to dig into. So I think maybe one thing I usually like to start these shows off with just to give people that might not be aware or familiar with your work kind of an understanding of who you are, what you what you do for a living or your passions, and then kind of where it all kind of came from. So if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Um, I my, re- my career really started off as an architect. And um, that was in the early 90s. And I kind of stumbled my way through um, to an internship with a really well-known Japanese architect named Shin Takamatsu, who I still consider to be one of um, the most talented designers I've ever met. Um, He did very extremely futuristic buildings, which really obviously kind of uh, sparked my interest in... um, in design without too many physical constraints. Um, of course, when I was younger, like many many people in concept art, uh, I looked up to Sid Mead, even before I who I even before I, I knew who he was or what he did. From there, I um, 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 actually had a chance. I got myself into computer graphics, uh, did layout design for various things before. Um, having a chance to join a Japanese company for commercials and games in Sapporo, Japan, which is where I met Michael Arias. And, um, oh, you know, cool. Michael, yeah, yeah, this, this is like in the way back mid nineties. Yeah. Mid nineties or so. Awesome. And, uh, you know, I think, um, it was specifically around, a, a um, a project that required the use of soft mage. And I still, to this day, think the people that were involved in soft mage and XSI were some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. You know, truly left brain and right brain pre- people, mm. which is the kind of people that I really like to work with. And Michael being a kind of epitome of that, I think. Um, you know, when I knew him, he was writing tune shaders. But of course, we had far more in common in terms of film and design and just you know generally cool stuff that was happening in the world and so that's where where we clicked and he ended up um pulling together a project um called tech on kinkrete so me myself my wife 
were on the pre-production design team and we pulled together um, probably like a three-minute test piece, full CG, tune shaded. I did the production design, um, built the city uh, along with a few artists. And the director at that point was Morimoto Koji, who I don't know if you know. Yeah. You know, Morimoto is a legend. And he still is a great friend of mine. But awesome. that was when, when we got to work together in this little office in Harajuku in, in um, Japan. Now, at, at the end of that process, while he was hunting for um, kind of full funding, I kind of got uh, headhunted and joined Industrial Light and Magic uh, as a concept artist and then an art director. Wow. So that was a but it was when, when, seven when was this? years. Was that this? was in 1999. Okay, yeah, because Techon Kinkery um, eventually was directed by Michael Arias, and that was like I think it was released like 2006 or so. So yeah, this is a six-year yeah. gap I think between these two productions. So sorry, oh, I, think was, I just uh, wanted to place the timing on all these things. Oh, it was a it was definitely a passion project for him. I, I wish I could have seen it through my, both myself and my wife. Uh, we both worked on the pilot, so and we love what he did at the end. I mean, it's amazing. It is a stunning piece of film. It's really beautiful. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, while the while industrial lane magic, I, I I'd like to call it the dark years. <laughs> not, because <laughs> I, not because I didn't enjoy the work, but I I didn't get to work on um, some of the better iterations of the Star Wars film. So I only mm-hmm. got to touch uh, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I did some a little bit more offbeat, kind of big budget Hollywood films. I, I worked on The Hulk with Ang Lee for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I worked on um, also Lemony Snicket for about a year. I really like uh, that film. It had some really beautiful yeah. art design and the feel of the world is stunning. I just really love that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, aesthetically, you know, a great challenge to make things look like they were old school matte paintings and, you know, fighting what the software is able to do for you out of the box and kind of forcing it to be one point perspective and, you know, making it look like a, um, a painting mm-hmm. rather rather than full 3D. I think that was aesthetically really challenging. And, you know, those films, even though they weren't um, blockbusters when I worked for them, I think in the years afterwards, I, I found people telling me that they really enjoyed them aesthetically, which is kind of gratifying. Sure. Yeah, because they're talking about your work and your contribution, which is key and important. Yeah, but right? at the time, it was a project that, you know, it wasn't the big budget Hollywood films that everybody wanted to work on. So it was kind of like, a, a you know, a little bit of a, um, I, I would say just a little bit off to the side. But um, I, th- I think, you know, looking back, I definitely enjoyed the aesthetic challenges for them. Yeah, you, and there's more freedom, I think, with those kind of projects because um, they're willing to try different new things, I think, which is usually, from my experience, the smaller projects are the, mo- the more liberating and challenging because you're really pushing yourself yeah. to see new different yeah, ways yeah. and perspectives rather than follow a pipeline and be a cog in a wheel, I, I, guess, I suppose. Yeah. Um, not trying to I mean, negative, just, to, yeah. just to put it in perspective, these are still industrial light and magic projects, so they're not small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, true, yeah. of commercials and stuff but um they were small in the context of how um they wanted to achieve something aesthetically different mm. so you know this would have been in i guess it would have been 2002 2003 you know computer graphics had really come of age already and pretty much making things look real was relatively doable relatively easy to kind of fight that and um, kind of do something that looks like a matte painting come to life or looks like something else was um, 
you know, it's just a little bit more challenging and that's, you know, um, but in a good way. I also worked on the AI, um, the Spielberg Kubrick film. I helped design the the Rouge City as well as uh, pioneered using game engines to pre-visualize the city. I ended up building, designing and building Rouge City as a mod for Unreal, burned it into a CD-ROM and let Spielberg uh, at home move around in real time. And that really, from what I understand, was kind of start of um, kind of real-time pre-visualization. How's his so interaction with that? How, how did he? How did he take to that experience? Because that he's a he's a very he, much he a loved, pioneer as well, and he loves this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I had heard that he was a gamer prior to that. Yeah, um, you know, we really kind of boiled it down to very simple controls. You know, you can still use a mouse, and then the keys just changed um, FOV on the lens, and the space bar would allow him to record, start, and stop. Hmm. So just imagine those stripped down simple previs tool where you can move around real time start a shot end a shot anytime you want change the lens by you know going up and down on the arrow keys yeah um so i think he took to it very well from what from what i understand we never commercialized it as it was and i think years afterwards uh industrial light magic did try to kind of uh, make a product out of it from what i understand I love seeing um, the behind the scenes of Tintin when you see Steven with the camera, the VR camera, and going in there. Not the VR camera, I guess what it's like a, a previous camera, I guess. And, uh, and Cameron uses a similar technique, I think, where they're going through and they're making these elaborate shots that they can never film um, in real world, but they're able to do that in Tintin, for example. Like, I'm not sure if have you are you familiar with Tintin? Have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. Yeah, yep. it has that incredible animated sequence that just goes on for like 10 minutes, just like yeah. ridiculously epic, like totally yeah, Steven yeah. style. Steven Spielberg at his best in animation, and you could just really feel like I heard that sequence took um, like three years or something crazy like that. <laughs> or probably. Oh, wow. I, I believe it. I mean, yeah. generally, the longer the sequence, the more complex it is. The longer it t- takes, like ex- exponentially longer. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it's funny because, um, you know, having the other half of my career in games, in video games, we, you know, the cinematics people tend to try to make things look less like video games. You know, more cuts, more cinematic, more um, classic camera moves. I would say. Yeah. Whereas the you know, live action directors, um, you know, tend to make their films look more like video games, completely yeah. unfilmable if it was a physical camera, extremely long, fluid shots, you know, like David Fincher, Fincher or yeah, exactly, yeah. Spielberg. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, it's always a, um, you know, one side tries to mimic the other, um, kind of pushing against its boundaries. and But, you know, the boundaries are different for each side. Yeah, definitely. And that's something I really wanted to talk with you about because of having been on the forefront of all these things, working with these massive directors and these bigger companies and stuff, and then seeing where things are now, which, I mean, we all understand that this, the rate of, of, of um, I guess, the rate of growth is exponential when it comes to the development of these uh, technologies and these emerging technologies in regards to AR, VR, the, the, the processing power of computers now, the, the personal computer being so so powerful now, even more than so than ever. Where is this all heading, do you think? Do you, do you have a, a perspective on where this is going to be, like in 5, 10 years, 20 years? Well, uh, well yeah. Um, 
I, I've tried, I tried to write down a lot of my thoughts on um, a couple of posts on LinkedIn. Um, but I do believe, um, I do believe um, that the Moore's law will continue and yeah. that everything that we are seeing now in the high-end VR devices and AR and the, and the, you know, in the hands of a few will filter down to the masses, uh, much like smartphones have been. And I'm not talking about decades. I'm talking about three to five years. Um, you know, being in Vancouver has been quite interesting because we're kind of in the hub of game development and now computer graphics for film. And so that's been um, something that I've been uh, part, been a part of seeing the start of something in the last couple of years. Um, I would say everything that we have imagined, you know, your career, my career, people in concept art have imagined what the future looks like in the previous 15 years will be a reality uh, in the coming five to 10 years. Um, it will affect not just entertainment. In fact, I think looking forward to entertainment doesn't interest me so much, but it's how visualization and digital um, immersion can change the way every aspect of our lives from the way we work to the way we play to the way we communicate. Yeah. And that's something that um, that it, it, I, I think people have been talking about this, but nobody, I mean, I'm literally saying that you can do it today. It's just not quite cheap enough for your mother to do it or your friends to do it, but you can do it today. You know, things like heliportation from Microsoft, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's stuff that we dreamed about only 10 years ago, but you know, it's, it's working today. So it, ch it touches every aspect of our lives. Yeah. So the question for, I think, creators like yourself and myself and other people is like, where do you want to be exactly in, in this world, in this new world that we help visualize? I mean, the couple of startups I advise today uh, in the VR space, in the AR space, um, basically the touchstone is not, um, you know, the touchstone is, um, you know, a movie like Minority Report. So it goes back to, I think, a couple of movies um, Blade Runner, Minority Report, that constantly comes up in technology meetings that I've been part of. Yeah. Same. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's well, because sci-fi is is a is a mirror. You know, it's a mirror. It's, it's it looks at what's plausible and and it shows us a fable or good or bad, and it kind of gives us a perspective, and it paves yeah, the way. Yeah. It's like a sketch, basically. It's a sketch of the future. But the thing with movies are so powerful because they they feel so palpable and they're so real feeling because of all the the amazing abilities behind the artists and creatives putting all that thought and, and know-how into making it look real. We perceive it, therefore we become it, you know, which is very interesting. It's a, yeah. And it, it cuts, I mean, I, I don't know if you've, I mean, it, it cuts through all the words. Once you see that, um, you know, if I was a, if I put on my business hat, it's, it, it, it's a, it, it's a use case that immediately it's visual and it makes people understand exactly how that technology gets used yeah. and how it affects society. But it's not in words or it's not essays. It's right there. It's so tangible. So, you know, I'm sure like yourself, my touchstones have been Blade Runner, has been a little bit of my, I mean, more so Minority Report recently. Yeah. Um, and it's just something about those. Well, I know what it is. It's, it's the research and the right. The minds behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Behind those two movies that seem to have like. Put a stake in the sand, in the ground for what the future uh, is like. 
Yes. Yeah. It's a smart people. It really is a smart people thinking about things that actually matter and, and mean something beyond like a, a whiz bang, boom, shoot them up kind of experience. It's, it's, it's less like, you know, the frontal cortex, like a lizard brain kind of reactions, more cerebral and, um, further evolved. Not to say that, um, you know, my minority report is just like perfectly made film, it, but at the same time, in my perspective, it, it has all those great spectrums and aspects that Steven's films have, and especially like the early ones have that like really great, um, just that take you in a, and grab your attention and take you on a ride. And that I think with Minority Report, it was very smart for them to hire those futurists because I remember I think it was like. They had um, the creative team had hired five futurists of some sort and had them sit in a room and basically for like five days and I think that was it and they just were like what is the future like what is that and then they just kind of took all the ideas everything that they had like spilled out basically and then manifested it as best they could and then yeah. also you know Stephen had to have a jetpack and I don't think that was probably in the meeting but <laughs> that was probably that was <laughs> yeah. an extra thing you know another piece another nugget in there but. I think what it is is what really captured that. And it's funny because Minority Report comes up a lot in meetings with, for me as well. And, and a lot of times I have to add, um, tell the client that that is based on a world that is based on, you know, logic, logical thought from futurists. But I think that Minority Report is almost um, in certain aspects is already we've already moved past that. You know, I think there's yeah. in many regards we've already um, accelerated in technology and our advancement past that. Um, not with the um, the cognitives, obviously. That's that's the whole next realm, I think, which I'd love to talk with you about because I have some theories on on to where that goes. But to touch back on what you were talking about earlier, um, yeah, I think that it's this whole next world, this new era, the next realm of of, of humanity of our, our systems, the way we do things. I mean, it breaks everything. Once we shed the shell of the, of our body almost, it's, it completely changes the playing field. And it's scary too, because it removes core values that once existed that kept us pure. But at the same time, it removes those core values and those things, you know, religions, uh, sex, all these kind of like key things, food, all that kind of stuff. I think it really changes it, it, it basically like a caterpillar to a butterfly kind of thing, you know, completely different creature. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I think um, with my training as an architect um, and urban design, I, I, I tend to think kind of a little bit more macro scale. So um, if you accept the fact that, you know, things like holoportation, autonomous vehicles, all that stuff is coming down the line. The things that changes, things that all cities. I mean, cities and highways. And I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to live in Vancouver, where I barely commute. But I know what it's like in Los Angeles or any of the big, big metropolises in the world. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's pretty interesting. If you, if you look at film, and how those both of those two touchstones that we talked about have the city, and all, and of course the recent project that you worked on, which I love by the way, uh, Ghost in the Shell, mm-hmm. has. As, a, as the city, the futuristic city, as really the star of the movie, and the depiction of what that city looks like in the future. But I think what we might be missing is the fact that with the coming online of new technologies, maybe the city itself dissolves away. And I'm not quite sure what that means yet. I, I, I think all I know is that if distances collapses, and you're no longer um, have to make your choice as a human being about where you live and where you work, 
and cut that up by the amount of hours that you live every day, if you remove all those constraints, what does that mean? So exactly. Where make, does that leave you? Yeah. Yeah. Where, I mean, you and know, the impact. Abundance. Of course, yeah. it's going to be good for the Earth. It's going to be good for everything. Uh, you know, it's going to be good for the carbon footprint. But at the end of the day, I think there's going to be impact that's a lot more. That's um, that's huge. It's on a macro scale, and I think the idea of cities in the future won't like this, look like the cities today. Of course and not. Yeah. I think it'll be a good thing. Yeah, of course not. You know, I had this other. I just really. I mean, to, to touch on that too. I remember Neil Tyson talking about like how the lunacy of um, being born on a piece of land that exists on this planet that's a speck, and you know, like everybody is saying how funny it is to draw lines to disconnect yourself from another part of the land that's all connected as one and how trivial and just silly it is and how weird of a, of a, of a, of a weird, really weird habitual trait. I mean, I'm not trying to talk about like the removal of culture because I love cultures and I love how like, you know, from culture we get amazing things like food, for example, the variety of food. Like I love that living in Southern California, I can get amazing like Mexican food. But then when I go to Japan, I get amazing Japanese food. But even in San Diego, I, I get a good mix of those two things as well. But what I'm getting at here is I think it's, there's a lot of really weird things that happen through just habitual nature of just existing with weird habits. But I'm really excited to see what's going to come of that next era, because that's really, I believe it's to be the evolution. I was thinking the other day, how odd it is like, you know I was re- watching some interviews about um, transgender and gay people who they were born and they felt that hey I don't I'm not a man or I'm not a woman I, I'm, I, I'm, I feel like I look like this but I'm not that you know and I feel I felt like what what a beautiful most liberating experience it could be for the future for the some, for somebody that was born or had that intention to not be stuck in a shell that wasn't what they were supposed to be you know like isn't that a weird experience and what a weird interesting thought that is too because it must be punishing to be in the shell of a body that you don't uh like you don't agree with and doesn't work for you you know like what an interesting thing you know so i think you know it goes it also um applies to ethnicity because um i'm sure you yourself um i'm not quite sure where you're from ash are you originally from america I'm from America. I traveled a lot, though. I traveled okay. all over the place. Yeah. So, but I mean, originally from Hawaii. Yeah, you, but yeah. You live in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I grew up in parts of Hawaii. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that kind of cross-cultural pollination is part of you, who you are too, right? Yeah, you know, like um, I'm a white male, so if I grew up in, say, I don't know, the middle of the country or something, I wouldn't have that abundance of variety in culture. Yeah. Whereas in Hawaii, like you're, you're kind of a minority. And so in like, you know, lots of Filipinos, a lot of Japanese, a lot of Hawaiians, Tongans, like Polynesians and stuff. So it's, it's a huge melting pot, a hodgepodge, you know, which definitely created a good variety for my childhood growing up, seeing the differences in cultures and accepting and acknowledging differences and stuff. I think it's really key. Right. So, you know, it definitely applies to myself as well. I mean, even though I'm um, Chinese by descent, I'm from Hong Kong, I probably culturally identify with you know, I think Japanese aesthetic and culture more than anything. Yeah, I love Japanese culture. It's oh, so yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my English, my Japanese is not even close to what Michael is able to do. Oh, he's so Michael's good. Michael's yeah. Japanese and a lot of Japanese people. Uh, <laughs> but I was going to say, what this just, just looping back, you know, we're probably 
the second generation who can be whoever we want to be. Um, we go on the internet and we see and learn about things from halfway around the world at a blink of the eye. Yeah. Um, and so when you say... Take it for granted too, it's crazy. Yeah, we take it for granted, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can stop it. So, you know, this, you know, there's obviously the physical impacts of the technologies that's coming down the line. But there is definitely the cultural impact as well, and it's definitely something that you cannot stop. You can't hold back, and I don't. I don't think you ever lose anything. You know, I like to think that I'm different, having been exposed to Canadian, American, and Japanese culture in that order. Yeah, um, and Chinese, <clears throat> and I'm just different. And just just like you, I'm sure you're just different than most of your friends who are, you know, born and bred in LA or wherever. So. I think we're, well, but what we're seeing, what we're going to be experiencing is that those differences will manifest themselves in a very, very visceral way. Visceral way. It's going to encompass you. You're going to be, be there, live those lives, no, no matter where you are physically. And that's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, so, we escape the shell of our bodies, which is a really yeah, interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I there, think there's something beautiful about being connected to your body and especially now like loving your body and caring for it and maintaining it. But it's such a drudgery, you know, but there is something to be said about the, 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 like when I do, when I train jujitsu, for example, like when I do, um, when I push myself extremely hard and I really push my body to its limit and that, that gratification of overcoming that like ad- adversity and stuff there is a, a, a massive reward system that happens with that along with the pain you know there's this gain i guess that happens as well but again it's just because it's just because something is doesn't mean it always has to be you know and that's the thing i find to be really fascinating you know so yeah and you know i don't, I don't think it's a um it's a zero-sum game you know i think um if we people if dreamers and designers and entrepreneurs have the ability to guide the future, and we if we survive the next few years, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I think yeah, I think there's no reason why it's not it should not be a separation of mind and body. I think it should be that you will have a richer life. Both your body and your mind will have richer lives. And I, I think if you actually are honest about our lives right now, if you think about it, you know, I, I'm able to have an amazing conversation with you who I've never met in person. Yeah. And I have a, you know, I'm in my house in Vancouver enjoying a nice day, a rare sunny day in Vancouver. <laughs> I'm sure you're at home, you know, enjoying whatever sunny. you do. Yeah, it's always sunny. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, honestly, it's, it's, I think um, both sides, both the body and the mind, should be able to be enriched by whatever is coming down the line. And I think that's, going back to Japanese design and culture, that's kind of why I think that's always I mean, a lot of people in the world, but, you know, that's what I loved about Japanese design and culture is that when you touch um, the architecture and the industrial design, the graphics, then the cities of Japan, you realize that it's almost like an epitome of where aesthetics and culture becomes manifest as material things, as objects. Yeah. And you just like, and like nowhere else in the world. Yeah. Japan is in a whole different realm. Yeah. (laughs) I'm such a fan of Japan. I did such a fan. I got a chance to finally go uh, about two years ago and it just, yeah, it's changed my life. I've always wanted to go and finally it was able to go and was only there for 10 days. So yeah, we were in Tokyo. Uh, I did a talk out at FATC there and then, um, then we went out to, um, 
Kyoto, and that was just okay. so incredible. It was the whole thing is just we took the Shinkansen across. It was just insane yeah. just watching Mount Fuji. Just, didn't you feel like you were like at the epitome of civilization? Uh, yeah, I felt like I was definitely in a very special place. I've traveled all over the place. I've been all over Europe. Um, there's only a couple continents I haven't been to, but for the most part, I've seen a lot of really interesting things. And when I was in Japan, I was like, okay, I'm definitely, I'm definitely in a place I've never been before. The completely, yeah. there's like um, the 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 respect of order and responsibility is just like so honoring, and it just makes you want to be a better person. I think for me yeah. it was. I remember yeah. we uh, were in the subway. It was me and my friend Aaron and Andrew. We were in the subway, and we um, the subways closed down, and we were like five stops away from where we needed to go. So we we're like, oh crap! So we walked up. You know, the subways are very deep in Tokyo. They're like eight stories deep which is really scary too by the way because of the earthquakes i was constantly yeah. afraid of that but um but we we walked up and then there was this long line that went out all the way to the street where there was this uh like a like a circle where the taxis were coming through and picking people up everybody wasn't crowding and surrounding our like you know being a jerk or an asshole to one another they're all in a line understanding that hey let's all just <laughs> like silently they were all just like they yeah. were doing their thing some were talking but they weren't like automaton robots but it's everybody was instead of fighting for a cab or whistling or arguing a la new york or any other city um it was so nice <laughs> it was like yeah. okay we don't have to waste effort and time and get our feelings and emotions hurt by people we can sit here and be cordial and allow like everybody to share and everybody's gonna get a taxi in due time. It's, it was just, yeah, things like that. And it was just moments like that. I mean, having coming from America, where there's great things about America, but there's also really bad things I think that happens from our culture. One of them is is the ego and the I and me all the time. In Japan, I felt a different experience of it. It was really breathtaking. I was, I told my wife we're gonna definitely um, spend some time. I want to probably get a piece of property or something out there so I can spend half the year there and just really get into that culture properly because it was epic. It was so cool. Yeah. You know, um, small towns are suffering from um, population depopulation. So if you're interested in moving there, apparently they'll give you a whole house for free and land. Well, um, yeah, just look it up, um, especially the smaller towns in Japan. I'm there. <laughs> you don't have to ask me. I'm, I'm going to go look at this like after we talk because that sounds incredible. I remember hearing from a friend of mine that they had bought um, their grandma's house because his wife was Japanese and they had bought their grandma's house, but they live in a smaller town. And he told me how cheap it was. And I was like, yeah, right. I didn't believe yeah, it. He said something that was like $30,000 or something. I'm like, yeah, right, man. I don't believe you. But I mean, if that's the case and no, it's true. It's true. That's, that's incredible. Uh, Why is it because people are moving to the city and they're wanting to make sure that the towns stay like somewhat fruitful? I guess? Yeah, there, there's so many. It's a very mountainous country, and there's a lot of small towns that's kind yeah. of cut off. So, um, with the um, you know the population is growth is stagnating, so a lot of towns are aging rapidly. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a combination of like you know economic as well as um, demographic. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's towns that on the, I read stories about them inviting young families. They get a free house, free training. If you want to be a Whoa. fisherman, <laughs> yeah, yeah, total, total. Um, oh, you know, man, young families, 
And I think recently I heard in the last couple of years, younger families have finally um, started moving away from the main centers like Tokyo and Osaka. Yeah, I couldn't uh, live in to- Tokyo. I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's too much for me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Kyoto, I lived there for a year. Oh, um, wow. Isn't it, it, isn't it just tranquil? It's incredible. It's just so it's incredible. Yeah, like I said, it's I like, love that market. That did you go that long, long market, that center one? Yeah, it's very long. And then there's the um, the little old school um, town. They have a little um, I forget what it was Ashiyama, called. you know, with the bamboo forest. Uh, I didn't go there. I don't think. I don't think I went there. But okay. there was one where all the restaurants, but it's all down this little tight alley. And there's oh, Pontecho. I think that's what it's Ponte called. Joe. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. The most amazing food I had. It was just incredible. Like, yeah, did, the most I, amazing um, food ever. In my life, I've had, it was in Japan. It's the best food. Yeah, yeah when we, um, about it. the architect that I interned for, he was a full-on, like, uh, he had a geisha um, for his, uh, kind of, um, not for anything crazy, wow. uh, but he was part of a very um, um, kind of upper-class mm-hmm. uh, family. So for his birthday, I remember being Poncho, and um, we had the whole, you know, the performance and the drinking and the drinking and the more drinking. And stumbling <laughs> yeah, out at, drinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stumbling out at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and on those um, those narrow streets. Yeah. And I, I just saw it was I kind of remember it was kind of rainy or misty, mm-hmm. and there was like geishas everywhere. And I was I I swear to God. I thought I was like back in the 15th century. Like for a moment there, I go, I <laughs> thought I lost sense of time. Yeah, um, which is amazing. Do because, that to you. Yeah, yeah, because Kyoto is not really for tourists, because the Japanese are themselves the best tourists. So that culture has been kept alive. Yes, for yes. themselves first and foremost. Beautiful. And secondarily for tourists, right? I was in uh, Kyoto and I remember um, snow. It was snowing when we were there and. Oh, um, yeah. It was just this moment. It just felt like it was in Blade Runner or something. I remember just yeah. sitting there just going like, man, guys, I just need to give me like five minutes so I could just sit here and just soak all this in and try to just retain as much of the memory as I could because it was just, yeah, it was um, it was just incredible. I, I couldn't recommend to people more to go to Japan and travel and experience that culture in some capacity. I'm highly fascinated by it, but I think – it really makes sense for people like ourselves, I would imagine, because design is kind of, um, they're kind of the kings of it in a sense because the way that their lives are is very much um, like a manifestation of design in certain aspects. You know, it's very intentful and very focus driven and very like observational and, and very aware. Um, uh, very, it's very cognitive as well, which is very interesting, but I try to put as much of that stuff in my own work as, as much as possible. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, it definitely shows in your work there, um, Ash. Uh, I, I think it's um, you know, I think if you believe, and I think you do, that design is first and foremost the creative problem solving yeah. of something that needs to be solved. Then I think it makes sense that Japan is a source of a lot of that because if you think about this island nation with very little resources to speak of, who you know basically lost the war. Um, they didn't really have anywhere to expand to. How the heck were they going to survive? And so that that kind of um, that lack of resources and the constraints kind of forced them to be extremely creative and yes. be mo- one of the most. I mean, when I was growing up in the '80s and all the way to I would say mid '90s, you know, Japan was 
the place in the world they were going to take over the world as far as um, everybody else was concerned. Yeah. So what they were able to do was to invest in refining design and products and technology and they put everything into it. And I think for the most part, I mean, you know, I, I think in their automobiles and I, I truly believe that they will have a resurgence um, in, as an industrial nation. But, you know, if you actually think about that, I think it makes perfect sense that it, a lot of this stuff was started in Japan. I have um, some amazing memories of um, visiting Sony. Uh, I had one of my first visits, my first visit to Japan was um, I had won an industrial design competition for Sony in 1992 um, for the telephone of the future. And um, I got to go there with my friend Albert Shum, who's now head of design for Microsoft. And we were both students by then. And um, we got to meet Sid Mead, which was awesome. Really cool. yeah, yeah, he handed us, he handed up our, handed our, our prize money in a bag of cash in Tokyo, <laughs> in Ginza. Um, uh, that's cool. What an experience. <laughs> yeah. But, um, my, my point is that, um, you know, if you actually look at um, their, their design, their products, they put everything into it, but they also have the most far um, forward-looking design culture and economic structure. Yeah. So they're not like American companies where they have to answer to board of directors every four months. I've had a you know chance to work with Japanese companies and they look forward in terms of decades. Yeah. And when I was visiting Sony, um, I got a glimpse of that. Um, and this was when Sony was the most powerful corporation, electronics corporation on earth. And um, I, I don't think very few people knew about this, but they had a lab called the Futures Wisdom Lab. And I, had, I met a few people there, and their job was to study the impact of their technologies, their products, in the decades and the, you know to come. Huh. And they literally had people dedicated to this. This corporation had people, had philosophers, had designers, had engineers dedicated to study what the impact of the technology was, um, you know, 10 years, 20 years out. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's what, yeah. No, and I, I, I don't know, like, no, I, I'm not sure if any other corporation would have the foresight to do that nowadays. Yeah. It seems everything seems to be much more temporary and, and that's another problem too with most of the corporations and stuff that exist is everything is just so just like Hollywood movies are just throwaway you know experiences yeah, now which yeah, is really unfortunate yeah. they're not they're not intended to be this long lasting you know in depth thing I just watched a movie last night which it was just it was so I call them ADD movies it's, everything's happening all at once at all times the whole the entire time yeah and I'm like yeah. whoa you don't need to do that for me to pay attention you know but I mean maybe it's just a new generational thing or something I don't know so. But yeah, yeah no, it's, yeah. that's really interesting to hear about that because it makes a lot of sense too. And, and as methodic and, and as massive as a company like that, you don't get that big by accident. You don't get that big by, you know, luck. None of that stuff. It's 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 definitely a designed approach, and definitely design is. You mentioned that too about the the. I think one of the big things about the culture in Japan that makes them very unique is different to like say Americans in America. Is America is very big, and it's so big that we lose perspective because it is so large as a yeah. country. Um, I think in Japan things are much more limited, especially as you mentioned. 
they, they don't like there's not a ton of farming real estate because of the agriculture so um there's it's, it's a lot of mountains and rocks and, and that kind of stuff which is difficult to you know herd and farm and stuff on so they have to think resourcefully and how are they going to expand and stuff. And I noticed the same thing. I experienced a lot of the same kind of thing growing up on an island in Hawaii too. You can't be a, you can't necessarily be a, a really bad person on these islands because there's you're you have to live cordially with your neighbor. You have to be, um, you have to be live within a tribe. You know, it, it changes the mentality and the mindset and what it does is what I hope the internet's doing was to humanity as a whole is it's real making us realize that hey, there's only so much of us, there's only so much here, and we need to be aware of that and be you know information is is, is power and being aware of that self awareness I think is key and I think that's part of that culture of uh, the island yeah. culture I think that's part of, a big part of it and from my very small perspective from what I've seen and growing up around no, it. I think that's part of it. That's what no, I was in Hawaii. I've, so. heard a lot of, I've heard a lot of people um, say, um, use the concept of island mentality for Japan. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think we're at the cusp of something larger and, you know, the spaceship Earth, the island that we live on, the only, as far as we know, the only spaceship around that works. Um, you know, the fact that in the last 20 years, this thing called internet has wired all of us together. So what the question is, it's a little bit of a race against time. Yeah. Now that we're starting to glimpse this kind of global consciousness that, you know, we are no different than, you know, the, the Syrian refugee or the, the, the Japanese salaryman or whatever. We all have the same wants and desires. Um, Which are the, what? What do you think those are? Because I had my thoughts on that. But what are your, what are the same thoughts and desires that most everybody have a universal one I actually, I actually think loneliness is one of the um, universal uh, fears yeah that everybody has yeah. and it kind of if, if, if you believe that it kind of makes sense that the internet gave birth to itself because we are as social animals as social psyches we need to be connected to other psyches so if you, you know, I've always, uh, I don't know if you have friends who um, have tried online dating before, but I've got some yeah, friends who just started doing it. I have friends who just started doing it. And, um, you know, you actually break down the numbers. You go, oh, you know what? It makes perfect sense because in your physical lives, how many people do you actually meet? Yeah. Right? No, it's totally. You don't, you don't meet you much anybody me. if you have no. a routine too, you know? Yeah. 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 So it's just a you know, game of numbers. So I think loneliness is one of those things that your mind, your your if you define that as your mind's um, need to be connected to another mind, then the Internet needed to in, invent itself. Right. It, it was yeah. completely um, unavoidable. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you think about the, the limits of the body and we talked about cities and, you know, commutes and all that stuff yeah think about the amount um, of energy of fuel and gas and if i had to go physically to your location to have this conversation yeah, think about yeah. the, the, the energy exchange and loss and waste yeah you know? yeah but, and if you actually think about the entire industrial era that's basically steam train the trains the automobiles and automobiles begetting roads and highways yeah. which beget cities that made you have to live an hour away from where you need to work which beget carbon emissions and all the terrible things that we've gotten in the 21st century. Yeah. It all has to do with the fact that our 
the way we network our bodies hit a wall as far as this spaceship Earth is concerned. Yeah, exactly. This was yeah. not, it's not sustainable for 7 billion people no. to move our bodies around so that our minds get, get, can get connected. Um, so, you know, in a way, we're a, a race against time, I think. Yeah. I think the technology that you and I have been talking about, VR, AR, Internet, that's the stuff that just came online, relatively speaking, in my lifetime, certainly. Yeah. So, you know, where it's going to go is it has to basically um, replace everything that we, the, 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 what the technologies, the, the hard technologies that was made by industrial man put on, you know, that, that was created in the last hundred years. Everything that's coming down the pipe has the opportunity to replace and make everything better. Yeah. So that your body should have an even healthier environment and a much better lifestyle. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting what it does for many things, and mainly religion and you know mm-hmm. theology and all these different things. It's going to be doing some really interesting things. There's going to be a lot of people clinging to certain things. And so I would bring up like let's say like um, like Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira or something like that. You know when yeah. if, when 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 Akira's power is unleashed or Tetsuo is trying to harness his own power and stuff like. These, the, I think a lot of those, um, the subject matter in that is a lot of it's a symbolism to, to bigger concepts and within his mind, obviously. But I think when you think about becoming a god almost, because that's kind of what we're talking about, individual gods that are part of a whole, a hive mind, a, a general consciousness of, of, of us collecting ourselves together. Um, I think it's really fascinating. You know, I think for when I, when I start to think about what my daughter is going to experience and if she decides to have kids, what they're going to experience and what their lives are going to be like, you know, are we going to evolve past this? What's going to happen to society, these things called roads and these things called automobiles. And, you know, I, I sit there in traffic sometimes and I just go like, this is the dumbest shit ever. Like you got to <laughs> yeah. fix this. This is just stupid. And it's a waste it's of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We need to have, we already have the technology for autonomous vehicles. We have the technology for hydrogen cars. Like why don't, why does it make it so that when you go on your road, your car goes, okay, you're autonomous now. Now we become a tribe, a whole part of a, a cycle, like a system, a nervous system. We get on the road and we don't have to ruin the roads. We don't have to waste that. But we get on our um, hydrogen-based cars that emit um, water only. So we're not destroying the environment. And we go in these things and we get on the system. There's no traffic anymore because everything is calculated. The problem with traffic is you get traffic if you, there's somebody like two miles ahead of you, hits their brakes slightly because they're on texting or something stupid like that because they don't want to drive either. You can't blame them. You know, two hour, two miles back, I'm doing yeah, 40 miles yeah. an hour because they're doing their 65 at their brakes, and that chain reaction causes a traffic stall. And it's just so stupid. You know, it reminds me of the age where I remember um, it was like the my friend Anthony would always tell me this it was like the, the the era with horses, how horse drawn um, wagons, and they would say like there was this guy who's like, well, if we're gonna be better, we need more powerful horses and they were saying, well, if we had any more horses, it would just be like the streets would be just covered in horse shit. You know, so we, we can't have more horses. And that's we're at that same phase. Where, like, no, we can't have more of these cars. Like, I love cars and I come from like car culture. It's very much American car culture. Yeah. yeah I love yeah. my, I have an NSX. I love it. It's so much fun. The joy it gives me, I, I try to enjoy it as much as possible because I know it's not going to last forever. But yeah. I'm totally willing to give that whole feeling and sensation, all that stuff up, if it means that we can have a better system. No, uh, so but you know, we, I think the point here is um, is the scale at which um, cars have taken over the earth. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I think if you, if you 
I had to blame any blame anybody for the 21st century, I honestly, I would blame urban designers, highway engineers, and architects. Because uh, they, there was a, uh, do you know, well, <laughs> yeah, but they, they, but they convinced the corporations that this is a healthy way to live. I mean, I mean, do you know, have you ever, um, you know who Frank Lloyd Wright is? Yes. Do you yeah. know who Le Corbusier is? Uh, no, not familiar. Okay, Corbusier was a, a French author, C-O-R-B-U-S-I-E-R. Um, um, he was the one who, in the, I guess he was a little bit before Franklin Wright, he had these visions of modernist cities that was linked together by highways. Mm. And um, he called them radiant cities, where everybody lived in concrete boxes. I see this, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like at the time, center kind of thing, huh? like, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, these were visions of the future, right? Mm. You know, automobiles, clean air, everybody was, you don't have to live in the slums anymore, the crowded slums. You were living in these kind of clean boxes in the air surrounded by nothing but um, uh, green fields. Mm. But, you know, the result. Now, if some people bought into this vision, a lot of not just corporations, corporations need a vision to latch onto. Sure, that's what people like you and me have been supplying them is visions that to latch onto to grow. It's not their job is not to say to to impose limits on it. Their job is to make money off of it. Yeah. So at some point, at some point, this vision caught on. This vision of the future. And if you look around the world, whether you're in Beijing or Los Angeles or Singapore, you can see the the, down, the dark side of this vision, which is now we've got the, these cities strung across miles and mi- hundreds of miles. Yeah. Um, you know, Brazil is a good example of this. Oh, yeah, that's terrible, true. Yeah. Terrible yeah. place to live. Yeah. Because when you think about the, the, the source of that vision is that it's purely for the body and not for the mind. Yeah. But it turns out that people want the density. People love being, you know, going out, seeing friends, bumping into people that they didn't know, go to bars, all that stuff. So I think urbanity, I blame it on a certain vision of what a city means and what it can look like. And we're living downstream from that. Mm. Um, I'm not a big fan of seeing people, to be honest. <laughs> Sometimes oh, okay. I'd rather be... Yeah. In nature, but at the same time, there are moments where I'm like, it's nice to be in a social environment. But I, I find that the more I go outside and deal with a modern person, I the more yeah. I get agitated because uh, I call them like a phone face generation. Um, they're completely absorbed with whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's Facebook or something. Which that's totally fine. I shouldn't fault them for that. But the interaction yeah. isn't as pure, and it just feels very, um, just feels very weird. Uh, it's almost like be here now, be there later, or be everywhere at all times. And I yeah. think it's just a weird disconnection. So, well, I, mean, so I, I, I like to think, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live in Vancouver. It's a pretty good balance of a city. Paris is a great with, city. I've never been there. With, but nature, with nature right around the corner. So, you know, if I um, want to just go out be nature, I can just go to the beach or walk up the mountain. It's, it's literally 15 minutes away. It's a very expensive city um, to live there, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Um, but I, I think it's it's also it's fortunate that, that this city grew up after massive uh, urbanization. So I think if you know, unlike Los Angeles, you know, uh, Vancouver really came of age really in the 1970s and 80s, uh, and by that by that time, I think some uh, a few enlightened 
urban designer that's already said yeah yeah like highways doesn't solve everything so they kind of the city was managed to kind of push back against um unimpeded growth yeah amsterdam's pretty cool like that too Um, yeah yeah it's a small very small town or city i guess but it's like to get around you need a bicycle and it's mostly designed for bicycle and pedestrian and yeah, they're very yeah. they're, I don't know if you've been there. Have you been to Amsterdam? Before? I have. I love that city. It's so awesome. Yeah. I love how accepting the people are there too. Like, oh you want to smoke weed, who cares? You want to have a prostitute, who cares? It's like who cares? You know? And I think it yeah. removes yeah. that whole taboo, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. It's like who gives a shit? And if that person wants to do it, let them do it. As long as they're not hurting anybody, just let them do it. Who cares? You know? It's like yeah. it yeah. removes all that power, I think, that, that that the city has a really interesting thing. But that's just very surface level things. I think the thing I really enjoyed about being there is um, just the, the, the openness and willingness. Be, if you get away from the tourist spots, because that's really not the very fun, but when you get into like the local hubs and the uh, cold, people that are locals there, it's just really an, an enjoyable town to be in. It's just really nice and well kept, and you can just tell there's a lot of thought and, and consideration put into the living situations that people will have there and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, you know, I guess you know that we talk about this. You know, if you think, I guess Los Angeles is a city that grew up in the forties, thirties and forties, coming of the age of automobile, right? Yeah, a city like Vancouver would be like, you know, well, a city like um, Kyoto would be the fifteen hundreds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, city like Vancouver is nineteen eighties, nineteen seventies. I wonder what the cities of the future would look like because. If you assume everything that we've talked about is going to come online, yeah. autonomous vehicles, VR, AR, immersion, wherever you are, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if right now there's a group of guys somewhere that's kind of all hooked in. They've got their HoloLens and VR headsets. They live really well by the beach. They're, they've got, you know, one gigabit connection to wherever they want to be. The food is awesome because they get seafood from wherever they are. And they could work anywhere through their um, network. Yeah, that's the growth of a new type of city. Yeah, that's that's definitely what. There's definitely people out there for sure <laughs> doing that. That's a hundred percent got to be reality because there's somebody living your dream life right now. There is it's just yeah. a, that's a reality. You know, somebody right now is eating the food that you've never had before, but that's the best food that you've never known you've ever had. <laughs> Or yeah. making love to the most amazing person right now that you know, like there's the, the, the yeah. abundance of, of plausible realities is, is there and it's everywhere too, which is really, really quite interesting. But yeah, I think um, that's definitely a reality and that's definitely something of consideration. And I think that's really where the um, I think that when when I watch films like um, No um, Children of Men, I feel like there was a lot of really plausible, real world possible solutions. I mean, it's. You know, you get into that post-apocalyptic thing. We remove that whole thing. Like, we don't have, we're not reprocreating anymore. You, re- you remove that. You just look at the technology and the aspects and the ideas of the technology in that film. They're pretty, um, they're pretty spot on. I think, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, just thinking about. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, like, I think that, I think that's a great film. Uh, yeah, I wish it wasn't so. Now that I have um, kids, I do wish there was more optimistic. Uh, futuristic films. Yeah, it's true. We don't have many uh, of that. I think we owed it to Ex we Machina was pretty good. I thought that game, Ex Machina opened up a lot of really interesting intellectual things, and her was a great example as well. Oh, her! I was thinking of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her is really great because I think 
her, um, just like, um, well, again, this is a more of a negative Aesop fable, but Black Mirror, I bring this up, all the listeners are probably tired of me talking about it, but I love that show because it kind of gives us, a, sheds a, a weird um, light on the possible bad side of technology, but I think there, you're right, there isn't a lot of content that talks about the, the positive things of technology in the future. Um, and I think the reason probably why is because we're so skeptical, to be honest, because we've seen what futurists and future things do, like a la LA and car automotive, like the, the car is the future. You're going to be able to get in your car and go anywhere you want, blah, blah, blah. And now we look at it and go like, fuck, that's not it. Because <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't want to get in that thing and be stuck. It sucks. Yeah. Like I, LA is one a city I try to avoid it, like as much as possible. I really don't like to go in that city because it just drives me nuts. Yeah. And it's it, it, it has it, like the I have friends that love that city and they 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 found it's a huge city so I can't judge it because it's massive. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just not a fan. So there's but some Tokyo, really great I mean, areas. So. Tokyo is a massive city too. I like Tokyo way more because, though. <laughs> yeah, because it's a massive city. Um, built for pedestrians. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the key. To wander here. around, yeah. to explore, to discover little nooks and crannies. Oh, you'll never see everything too, because they don't have like, um, you know, they have the, the zoning laws. They they have businesses like inside of businesses, inside of businesses, yeah, yeah. inside yeah. of a block. So you yeah. go around a, a block in Tokyo, you, you're going around 40 businesses in one building. And you oh, I remember um, wandering around one night drunk in Kyoto. <laughs> yeah, and I was some, doing the same thing. And, um, yeah, some dude um, um, was standing outside this building, waving me in in Japanese, and he had a fishing rod in his hand. I go, what? Okay. <laughs> so I went there. It was a bar, and the center of the bar was a murky pond of um, South American fishes. <laughs> so you, the whole Uh-oh. thing, they had, they had the heat cranked up, and it was decorated in pseudo-jungle style. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the drinks were pretty expensive. I think they were like fifteen bucks a drink or something. But while you drank, you can catch um, these uh, giant Amazonian fishes that had like scars on the back from being, you know, caught and released, caught and released <laughs> dozens of times, hundreds of times. Oh, man. They were they were tough, you know, tough son of guns. <laughs> Poor guys. <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, Tokyo. That's totally Blade Runner right there. That's a Blade Runner oh, experience, you know. I've and, been in bars where it's only um, retina scan. And, um, you know, I mean, anyways, it's, it's, uh, it definitely feels like, um, like I described to people what Japan's like, it's, it's like somebody's brain and each floor of each building is a tiny little secret. Yeah. <laughs> and you have no idea what you're going to step into. No, you never, and you'll never see it all. Not even no, close. Yeah, yeah. the truth is you don't really know anybody for, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's that little corners and, and it's really, truly like that. If you get to know it, be you, you know, for more than 10 days or 20 days or whatever. And they, people start bringing you these wacky places. Oh, I can't wait. I can't oh, wait. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, uh, I can't wait. Yeah, um, Michael took us to this really beautiful, amazing restaurant when we were there too. And it's just, just it was very homely feeling and just incredible food. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just, yeah I definitely want to go back and then just hang out with Michael and be like, okay, Michael, take me. <laughs> take, me <laughs> take me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, because it's just yeah, a, you're it's definitely a special spot. Yeah, you should. Uh, I, w- I was going to invite you. I'm on um, 
a panel for a short film festival in Sapporo every year. Oh, yeah. So if you ever want to be a juror there, I can invite you to be a juror there. Do anything. Bring <laughs> me with you. <laughs> I would love to. I mean, any yeah. any excuse I can get to go to Japan, I'm constantly trying okay. my best because I really love I just love it there and it's just something a very special place and I get so much from it creatively and it just really um would you yeah, would you success. mind sitting through a hundred short films yeah I'd do that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. No, You're like, up. That, signing that, you up <laughs> awesome thank you yeah <laughs> like, I, I gotta be careful what I sign myself up for but it should be fun <laughs> I gotta talk to my wife about it but, no. <laughs> yeah I, I have the same problem yeah it's a good problem to have though yeah you mentioned yeah. working with your wife earlier um, does she is she in the creative realm as well? She do creative stuff. Uh, she was actually an um, animator, okay. so she um, she's taking a break ever since we had her kids. But um, her name's Leslie Fulton. Um, she actually animated on um, Star Wars, on um, uh, all the Indiana, most of the Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. including the big shots with um, um, Davy Jones. And then she also worked on District Nine. Um, when we moved back to Vancouver, she oh, was yeah. on, she worked in, um, at the embassy on um, the big shot with the when the droid grabbed the missile from the air, as well as the aliens. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so she's an animator. That film's uh, really damn beautiful. It's like the CGI, the level of CGI in that film, they just really did an incredible job. Super good. Yeah, yeah. Are you yeah. talking about District Nine? District Nine, yeah, 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 Plus the, yeah. the prawns and stuff. The, just the look, yeah. it's like, jeez, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Neil, I mean, Neil Denner, Neil, um, sorry. Neil, <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. Neil deGrasse. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's definitely a, a super talented dude. Yeah, yeah. He knows that he's a kind of like a multifaceted guy that can do a lot of things. When I met Richard Taylor when we were at Weta, um, when yeah. Jay and I went to go see the Ghost in the Shell stuff, Richard said that. Yeah, um, he could basically um, he could pretty much do make the movies himself, but he, he doesn't have enough time, so he wants to team up with everybody to have them help. You know, and I think he he collaborates with really really talented, smart people that are yeah that help we, him too. You know, I, I think that District Nine, from my perspective, is his best movie because I think that the way that he wrote it with his wife or his creative partner, I can't remember. Yeah, his details. wife. Yeah, wife. but I think that that she helped check and check through the checks and balances for that because yep. his other films, I just like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, these yeah, movies, it doesn't yeah. feel the same way. I'm not trying to be a jerk. She, I, think she, I think she wrote um, Chappie as well. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan, but I I didn't really like Elysium or Chappie personally. I just couldn't get through them. So, but I yeah. really there's the fundamental core aspects of District Nine. I felt were really great and a story worth telling you know about being alienated and, and segregated and um judged and having that kind of like that's a core story to be told but um, yeah i mean yeah. a lot of times you know i mean i always hear friends complain about movies being ruined by the studio or hollywood or whatever but <laughs> yeah, i mean the truth is it's really really hard to make a freaking good film oh it's really incredibly awesome because it's a million decisions and i'll tell you what I think when Neil um, did District 9, not only was he a talented dude, um, he had the benefit of having nothing to lose yeah, and not exactly. a huge budget. He didn't have a huge budget. Yeah. So it was the right story for the the you know the, the visuals. Yeah. You and see that with Ridley Scott too. You see that with Ridley when he was starting yeah. to. Necessity yeah. is a mother of invention and he was constantly just going for it. You see it in Jim Cameron's too. Yep, you know, yep. like you don't have all the money and yep. the abundance and time yep. in the world. You have haste, and you just make 
problem solve as you go. Yeah, actually, you know, today, I think even if they're willing to throw money at it, it's the time. They never give you time no, to that, go back. Yeah. And, you know, as an artist, and I, I think I count those people that you just mentioned are truly artists, visionaries. I mean, I think, you know, Jim can draw, Ridley can draw, mm-hmm. Neil can't draw really, I don't think, but he has really good taste and he can do CG. Yeah, he can do CG. Um, yeah, yeah. Really, which, is, really which is the future of drawing, really, if you think about it. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily I, I, need to I've draw. Um, well, I guess I, I yeah. think you do, uh, which I wanted to talk to you about, too, because you are an artist and a draftman and a, and a person that can take a pen and paper and convey your ideas from what yeah. I can see quickly. How yep. important do you think that value is? And is it diminishing as, like, because I look at CGI and running, like, Learn Squared and how much time I spend in the computer now. In comparison to drawing, um, I, I think about it pretty heavily and go like, "Wow!" Like I think this I've seen is your drawings, future. Too, Ash. I What's think that? your drawings are good. Oh, thank I've you. I've seen your drawings as well. Oh, thank you. You're so flattering. Right. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. um, I do think is a dying art. Yeah. And I think what I would say to people is that um, I don't think it's ever going to come back as a. Um, if you want to be a concept artist, and all you can do is pencil drawings, I think you're pushing against the windmill, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Is, um, on the other hand, I would encourage anybody that will, wants to use their creativity, their design skills to communicate, to start something else, um, whether it's a, you know, a film or a product or a building or a city. I think everything starts with a drawing because it's kind of like thinking out loud it's kind of like jazz in a way that like you don't quite know what you're looking for. The tools doesn't tie you down. All it is is a pencil on a piece of paper. Exactly. And so you can explore and keep it loose really, really quickly. So that's something that I tell most people nowadays. Like I, I actually, um, you know, I'm in a position to hire a lot of artists as well as art director types. And um, even though the ability to use uh, CG tools is really important. I also kind of want to know that at the, at the heart of it, they can draw and the fundamentals of drawings are, are there. Not rendering. Rendering is different than drawing, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically so, pulling the things from your mind and imagination, yeah, putting it through your hand yeah, and translating yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. To, to, to um, um, you know, I, I used to work with this architect and he, he used to call paper um, – he used to call it thinking. He he called it thinking paper. Yeah, that's um, because that's the way actually, you yeah. grab a big piece of paper, you sit around with pencils, and you think together. Yeah, and I think that's a, a definitely a, a lost skill, and I still use almost every day. In fact, I'm drawing as we speak. Awesome. Yeah, I was <laughs> um, too. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a that's something that um, Where have people. Where been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's, it's incredibly scary. powerful as a tool to think. And I can, if you really are a left brain designer as well as a right brain thinker, yeah, you can tell and you can dissect the pros and cons of any idea, even at sketch stage. Yeah, the rest is just icing on the cake, you know. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm not taking away from people who can add details to render, um, to cool. light, to execute. I think that's I'm not taking away from those people at all. Yeah, With I think that's a different process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more, too. And I think I think what we're getting at is it's really important to use your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like what I see a lot, let's say, like the, the trend on like ArtStation or whatever, these different websites that pop up. Oh, my um, God. 
it's it's just like oh let's just rinse and repeat do what we're all you know oh what, what's God. popular for the likes and stuff and I you know I totally get that because if I think about myself as a kid growing up and looking at my art heroes which are like Todd McFarlane and all these like you know, oh, artists, yeah. you know yeah. I would go oh I'm just gonna draw Spawn so I, yeah, I understand yeah. it through and through and I can't criticize it because well I can because it, it should not be like that but at the same time um, those people that might just be trending and going off that they're just excited and i think that they're just excited to create and i think that's great that they're spending their time doing something like that rather than something negative but what i do i'm constantly trying to enforce with everybody that i talk to is like go make your own thing try this out you know see what see find some kind of interesting thing there you know and but there, there is a it's a it's a it's a I, I don't i don't think i should be ever be allowed to be able to tell somebody that but i just i'm just curious to see what they would make if they were to go off and try and venture into their own style and it's a liberating experience it's really hard to as i started to develop my own drawing style i started realizing like how difficult it is because the more you find your style the further away you go from your influences you know yeah, yeah. and it's just like because uh, <laughs> you know i really want to be as good as that person but that person is only good because they took that same leap and you must do the same and that's something i find interesting but the art yeah. of drawing i think is really important i find it to be disappearing more and more and I find it disappearing in my own workflow more and more because um, I still do it, but I, I, it, it never goes away. I think you have the same thing. It's like you'll never forget how no. to draw, which is great. I think the key hey, I is... Wanna, uh, we're probably getting close to the end. I want to end this by asking you a question. Yeah, we have... Um, Can I ask you? Yeah, please. How much I, time? I have like 12 minutes, so we have a little bit of time, okay. but if that's okay. Ash, I think you're one of the most talented dudes I, I know. Oh, thank you. Sheesh. I mean, I, I, it blew me away. Um, you know, when you're, you're ghost on the show, not the, the movie stuff, but also the stuff you did on your own. Oh, that because, was with a group of people that I was that definitely working well, with. Oh, I can see a certain aesthetic hand behind it. Okay. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> and I, I've seen most of your stuff and I followed your stuff all the way through. I'm not quite sure what your background is, um, whether it's design or illustration. Um, but here's my question to you, and in, in, in effect, it's a question to other folks who's going to listen to this podcast. It's like, my, what I I think what I'm been trying to do with my own career is to say my art and what I create is just the first step of starting something for myself, whether it's a business or a technology or a team or a product. I really don't see myself as a concept artist and I never want to. So we've talked about how it feels like the future is right here. What do you want to do with your talents, Ash? Mm. Going That's a great question. Thank you so much. I mean, I have a hard time accepting uh, such kind words. So I appreciate it. Um, yeah, the future, I really feel like I'm doing it. Honestly, I feel like when people it's funny because people ask me like what is it that you do and i say i'm just creative that's basically what i say i'm just being you're selling yourself short you're selling yourself short yeah if that's what my wife say, says too <laughs> no sir, yeah. i mean when i see some i mean i i'm i mean I, i'm friends with some of the most talented i'd like to think um concept artists in the world and i see them putting out their visions to be on film and on the other side i'm you know i i, I have another group of friends that are VCs and startup people and technology people and I, I see the two sides completely coinciding in the type of projects I'm interested in so I I would open it up to you as well as other people like you is like 
what do you want to, if you think your visuals can be started something in the real world where do you see your role in it can it be more yeah. than just a concept artist no it's way more than that and i have a couple big ideas to help change um, a lot of the way that we consume things um, namely food consumption growing, okay. up, growing up as a uh, as a just under a single mom and just the you know those days where you know there's not a lot of food in the fridge or there is no food in the fridge wow. those experiences yeah. and that yeah. and that, that's a, such a small smidgen of the pain that i'm sure so many people are dealing with on a daily basis which is just it's 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 um it's despicable that it's even allowed to happen and shouldn't yeah. and the food reason why it isn't is because um, um the way we consume things is improper and i think that i there's a couple i have an ambition um one of my big ambitions once i get past a lot of this like selfish little like kid stuff that i'm doing which is like drawing and making these things and having no. fun with that it's, it's, it's well, I do it because I love it. I it's like, the cards that you're given in life. That's what I was given. I, you, you have to use it. Yeah, I'm very fortunate and thankful, but I do agree and acknowledge and understand that it is a selfish ambition, and it definitely is like um, it's it's not like a it's not a it's not a big it's, it's I'm not helping humanity basically in little no, baby no, no, pockets. No, no. Maybe end, but no, yeah. no, you get me wrong. Okay, let me rephrase this. Okay, um, every time I go to a startup meeting in Silicon Valley. Some idea, the, the, the impetus, the seed of the idea is for somebody to be able to visualize what the future can be. Yes, yeah, it's key. And, 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 and um, it's not just an idea for a movie or a story, but it's literally in the last five years, last 10 years, it, we feel like whatever you can imagine, whatever you can make real for people to see, it can happen, right? We're in that cusp right now. Yep. So I'm not saying Magicians, your yeah. gifts are wasted in making movies. I'm saying, can you think about, and I encourage you to think about applying for real world problems. Yes, I am. Um, but don't, don't stop using your talents because well, you know, I love them. They're just it's very rare. Yeah. It's extremely rare. Yeah, no, thank you. And I definitely, um, I love what I do. And I'm, um, for the most part, it's mainly when I do it for myself, though, when I have to do it for films and stuff that I'm not really excited about, it's mainly pain and making a paycheck, basically. But I do my mm -hmm. best to, to do the best I can. But there is, and I have a vision to help the way that we consume food. And one of them is being, um, and I'll just tell the idea out there. And if anybody's listening and wants to be a part of this, or if you want to go and make money and do it your own way, go for it. But my main thing was one day I came into my fridge to get something and the, like the lettuce or something I saw was like wilted and I was like, oh, I had to throw it away. And as a kid, you never throw food away. You figure out, a, you eat, you eat what you have and that's what we have. And that's it. You know, like basically like food stamps, basically that's what we're living on. So it's like, you wow. don't waste food. And so, uh, you know, I've made a successful life for myself and I'm able to waste food if I want to, which I don't like doing. <laughs> my wife and daughter call me the garbage disposal because every time we have leftovers, I eat them and stuff. I just, from that, <laughs> that's, that's me I, that's me too by the way <laughs> i'm sure a lot of people will see too i'm sure people are giggling about that, that but anyways i went to my fridge and i was like this is ridiculous and i thought i thought to myself well why doesn't why would it why don't when i go to a grocery store why doesn't everything just um go into a database inside my phone or my computer or whatever and say like hey you have this do you have these ingredients and it goes and syncs up with like a food network or something it says well rachel ray said you can make this thing and this is going to expire soon so you, this is what you should cook tonight and then it also is like, you know, I could tell my phone or whatever this, it'll TiVo you basically and eventually go like, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds or something like that in the next three months. And what it'll do is, okay, you have these ingredients, make these ingredients. And then the next thing you need to go is you're going to buy these ingredients to cook these things and blah, blah, blah. Makes it easier for you so you don't have to like 
you know, fend for yourself. And what that all that data would do is basically we're gathering data and everything that we currently have. It just allows us to have it more ready. And then from there, it will it will feed that logic and knowledge to farmers so that are not over farming their soil. They're making the, the the right amount because if you go to a grocery store and you think about the amount of fucking waste that happens yeah. at one single grocery store, it yeah. is fucking gross. You know, like yeah, yeah. all like all the cheese and the dairy and the meat I think and animals I think dying because like we don't even eat them. It's like and then there's people that are starving. It's like no, this doesn't make any sense. We have the technology to have all the data there. So I think yeah. I think we're throwing away half of our food. I think it's stupid because that that's we're we're over. So a big part of like um, the, the you know like global warming comes from um, uh, the animal consumption, the consuming yeah. animals because we're deforest deforestation and then all that methane, all that kind of stuff causes like the greenhouse effect is just flourish. It's also automotive, but a big part of it is our consumption of meat. Yeah. It's a big it's problem. Yeah, cows. Cow farts. Um, it's, cow farts. Exactly. It's huge. I mean, if you don't believe me, look up like what's happening in India because the cow is sacred and you'll, you'll <laughs> see. Just do the research because it's really interesting. But anyways, yeah. I felt like to me like, well, I can design that. I can design the app. I can design how it works. I can think about it. I can. I was really thinking about reaching out to like Whole Foods and saying, hey, let's do a test study inside of a city. Let's say San Francisco is very progressive. Get the, everybody on the city block this application. Let them use Whole Foods and then see how it works. And they create their own little ecosystem. And people are able to eat healthier. Eat, um, they can eat affordably if they want to. They're not wasting anything. The farmers are making the right amount of food. They're not over harvesting. And they're having a, they, they know that they're going to have this at the end of it. You know, it's like not this ambiguous, weird, random thing. We're using data driven decisions. And I think that's the key. That's really the key there. And I felt in my mind, it's like, it's, all the stuff is there. The key ingredients are there. It just needs. I need to meet with the right people that can help me. I can design it. I just need to meet with the right people that have the infrastructure. I can meet with those people that have those grocery stores or whatever. And a lot of them are going to be very hesitant because they make money off the waste, you know. No, but, yeah. no, I don't. I don't think so. I think a lot of them, from my perspective, that's why. Well, they I, do I guess business, the big, maybe know, the big so. chains, do. exactly, like the WalMarts and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, if I could show them, like, hey, if we use this app and we create an ecosystem. And people are consuming properly and, and healthily, like it's great, you know. And you don't have to do it only with um, grocery stores. You can also do it with restaurants too, you know. It's like, hey, I want to eat out. So it's like you just TiVo yourself basically with your food. You say, oh, well, I, I want to eat Italian tonight. Oh, we don't have the ingredients for it, and nothing's going to go bad today. So here's a bunch of restaurants that are in your area that are good, you know, and blah blah. Yeah. And, and then there's just, a couple. Yeah. There's a um, um, and not. I think that's a awesome problem to try to solve, and I'm sure if you do it. It's gonna look better um, and more, um, you know, more immersive than um, you know something done by some app designer somewhere else. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think aesthetic. I think aesthetics is really important. By That's the way, so don't get me wrong. Steve and I John, I apologize. I just, know that. So they, I just hate um, um, you know talents being wasted on nothing but entertainment. Yeah, um, so me that too. sounds phenomenal. <laughs> There's a couple of things you know um, I will tell you about. One is. Um, there is a, a companies in Japan again, where it's basically a coalition of like you know fifty farms, and then every month you get a catalog, and all you do is pick from the catalog what kind of vegetables and um, you yeah. like to get, and you will only get the vegetables that's ripe, and only the vegetables that's available um, to you for you or your store. So it's kind of catching on. Amazing. It's basically a subscription model, so that instead of um, going to a grocery store. 
and then there was a you know a, a additional chance for waste. Yeah. This is directly from a bunch of farms directly to the consumer. That's great. That definitely cuts the waste. And the farmers will feel better because they know they're going from their their land, from their hands. Yep. All their hard work goes yep. right to the people yep. that are consuming it. Yeah. I mean, and I believe they do have an, app, they have an app that you can like. Let's say this month, um, you know, you don't want any spinach. You can say I don't want the spinach, and then uh, automatically other people in the group will uh, have the ability to to pick, you know, buy the spinach off you. That's great, and that brings it back to small town culture. It really does because yep. it brings yep. it back to because right now it's just too big. It's gross. It's nasty. It's, it's just really yeah. sad. And I don't like wasting things. I really hate that. Yeah. And I know when you go to restaurants, think about all the waste in there. Like we're just yeah. incredibly wasteful. And, and mainly, I mean, I know in, in American culture, my culture that I live within in this piece of land with lines between it, the, it's incredibly wasteful. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that there's a lot of people in America that are smart and willing to have that change and really want that too. Um, but if you're listening and you want to be a part of that, email me because then I would love to be, I mean, as Wilson is saying, it's, it's a shame to waste talent on or like waste energy on things that are just frivolous and wasteful. Um, and and yep. there's, there's, man, there's nothing more wasteful than films because <laughs> they're so <laughs> destructive and so wasteful. Well, it's and kept, so, it's kept us, um, it's kept us, um, you know. Um, in paychecks for a while, so this, yeah, that's not- I'm thankful. But I mean, if it falls, I, I'll find something else. I'm not gonna, you know, I'll yeah. find my way. I'm not worried about it to be completely honest. So, I would, it would be a bummer. But at the same time, it's, it's not like I wouldn't still draw or do these. You know, like you mentioned the Ghost in the Shell tribute. That was a completely from like the love of my the things that I love. It came from love, and it, I, I didn't make a dime on it, and I actually spent oh, dude, like three thousand oh dollars on it because it was that was your love. Show yeah. through so much. I mean, it's unbelievable how good it was. Oh man! Well, I can't wait to show you the next one. The next one's going to be even better. So, ah. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. That's that's you know, the next big passion project's coming out. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know if um, have you heard if like Otomo has he seen? It's not not Otomo. Sorry, Oshi. Has he seen your version of Ghost in the Shell? Yeah. Um. So um, yeah, yeah, he he's he was doing a. Um, a talk in Toronto, I believe, and um, a friend of mine, I think, recorded and sent it to me. But somebody in the audience said, "Hey, have you seen that Project 2501?" And he was like, oh, "I think so." And he was saying how um, he 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 finally remembered. He said, "Yeah, why did they do that?" He was really he was like, "It was really beautiful," but he was, "I don't know why they did it." You know, he was so he's so <laughs> humble. I think you know. I yeah, think yeah. He didn't. Well, he, it's yep. very Japanese, you know. So yeah. Yeah. The, there is a funny story you might actually really appreciate is when I was in Japan, I finished the Ghost in the Shell tribute and stuff. It was months prior. And I was in Japan doing this talk and randomly um, a, a person in the audience had worked, was working at, um, I forget the name of the studio, but they do uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion and all that stuff. Oh, uh, studio Hara, I think it is. Um, but anyways, he said, no. hey, if you would like to come to is the studio. studio IG? It's not production IG. It was a uh, studio Kara, I think it was. Kara, like okay. Um, right. he, he said, would you like to come to the studio and, and, and to see our studio and our place? I was like, of course, I'd love to. I'd be honored. Thank you so much. And so we met up with them and we, they took us for a tour. And I'm not sure if you're familiar, but from what he told me is, is Japan has the same kind of things that we had in Disney where you have a couple of like the greats, you know, the nine old men kind of thing. That's yep. the same kind of thing in Japan. And I, ironically, the guy who drew the sequence for Ghost in the Shell, the intro, was there at the building randomly during a different interview, like a different meeting. Uh, and I wow. got a chance to meet him, and he, he saw it with me there. It was just like, 
oh, well, this is made for you. You know, like I was like, here's a gift, you know, like this is all that work and time and effort. He was, I think, you know, too, is like Japanese culture, they really reserve their emotions and like reactions and certain things. And he was, you could just tell he was really, he was like, really like, wow, this is great. Like, I'm so surprised. And like, this is what a, what a special thing, you know? So it was cool. Yeah. I mean, all my connections to Japanese animation greats were through Michael. Yeah. I I met, I met, um, he introduced me to Otomo-san, uh, and when, Otomo, <laughs> yeah. when he was working on um, Steam Boy, and I helped a little bit on Steam Boy, That's just awesome. in the early days. So I got a sense of, um, and I've also visited uh, Miyazaki Studio and all that stuff. And wow. you know, more honestly, Morimoto Koji is one of the most talented dudes. Um, incredibly smart. That, yeah, yeah. He's a great artist too. Like amazing artist. Yeah. I got him to do a project for Dell for me a couple of years ago. Oh wow. Yeah, that was really nice. And um, actually, I was going to grab him and do something else. <laughs> you know, this year. He's such a smart but, guy. Um, yeah. That's a, many people that don't know that the Japanese animation industry don't realize that it's not an industry. It's like 10 guys. It is. Yeah, exactly. It's 10 so, guys, but they have, there's also an army, too. I mean, when yeah, Tomo-san yeah, was like, making Akira, he was like using all the animation studios in Japan. But, it's the same, <laughs> but those studios use the same group of... Yeah, Koji Morimoto and all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Incredible. But it's incredible craft and everything that goes into it. And it's like, that was... The homage was just like, hey, a love note to you guys. And that's it. It's not about like, hey, I've had so many people like, can we buy the posters? Like, no, I can't because I respect and love the people that made that so much. I can't. I'm not going to make profit off of this. And if I did, I would I would take all that money and give it back to them or do it to like uh, some kind of contribution to somebody, you know, helping people basically. Like, because I remember there was a, they had like the Fukushima event that happened yeah. with the, the power plant. It was really unfortunate. And I was like, that would have been great to take any of that money and everything that I would have ever made off that to give it to people that needed it and to take that I think that's the pure thing and I think that's really hopefully where the future goes it's like paying things properly with complete like sincerity and then giving to somebody that needs it because it's not like we don't need it what am I going to use with that you know it's like I don't of course money's great but it's like I'm not, <laughs> I don't well, want to make money off this there's no point to that you know so well I mean you know like just closing the loop a little bit you know i think people like yourself and myself we were born with certain ability to visualize things and i think we owe it we owe it to you know our kids in the future to kind of present an optimistic view of where things can go um and if it's not going to be in the context of films it needs to be in context of something else because you know we need that balance because if not without that the future is a pretty scary murky place and it doesn't doesn't need to be if you truly believe that um, people get um, can be guided or can be um, affected by what they see, you know, then, you know, again, this is kind of a call to action for, you know, yourself and other folks that might be listening is, you know, use your talents for something that's actually positive. And if you want to depict the future, go for it. Let's depict the future in a positive way. I challenge for- you project or some product or something right yeah it doesn't have to be cheesy in many ways ghost in a shell original anime wasn't at all it actually was quite uh, um quite uh evolved and quite beautiful and almost like a birth statement of like the the insurgence and projection of the possible evolution of humanity you know it's really interesting so yeah i mean 2001 is not um dystopic yeah, it is really, it's very yeah. optimistic. Yeah, it's very optimistic. Yeah, considering too, because a lot of his films are not, so which is really interesting exactly. too. So, exactly. no, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a challenge. And I think it's a, it's a great place to 
leave it here. And I'd love to have another conversation with you anytime you ever want to. But <laughs> okay. it's a great challenge to anybody out there that's that's hearing us talk about this. It's a great challenge for you and, and myself included to mm-hmm. not just you know do these things. For, you know, like I you know don't learn 3D just to make fake guns. Like go out there and try to figure out <laughs> yeah. another way of like you know how can we make something that doesn't seem cool cool. And I'm seeing a, a big insurgence on it um, with a lot of people and cultures. But let's be a part of that. Let's be a part of the positive. Um, reinforcement of you know creativity and, and having things be great and awesome because it doesn't need to necessarily be like cheeky for that either too so i think that's the key so yeah c-a-c-a-f-g concept art for good there you go i like that it's a good idea <laughs> concept <laughs> art for good no guns is like and if it is a gun it's like a gun that like i don't know shoots like shoots. it's it's, it's like, the, like the mystery man oh. gun where it shoots like funny things at you or something that stuff yeah 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 <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is um, what's so funny, you know, meeting you for the first time on Skype, having this like open conversation with you. And it's just like uh, kindred spirits. I think Michael was right on when he right after we had a call, well, I had my episode with him. He's like, you really need to talk with my friend Wilson. You guys would get along really well. So I think it's spot on. So <laughs> big thanks to Michael for that. Appreciate that. I will, so. send, I will send him a note. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. And, and I'm looking forward to uh, possibly working with you and, and, and chatting with you and getting you know, to know you more in the future. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, yep. Thank you very much. And um, yep, this is just a start. Right. I, I know who you are now, Ash. <laughs> Perfect. And that concludes this week's episode. Big thank yous to Wilson for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 155, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. Go out there, be powerful, be prolific. Peace out.